you can take your copy of God's Word and turn to Mark chapter 6. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. Hear now the Word of the Lord. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue... And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Let's go to God now and ask for him to bless it. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for your word. God, um, you have the words of eternal life. Where else shall we go? So we have come to your word this morning to hear from you, to, to repent, to respond to it in faith, to know more about you, Jesus. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you can illuminate this passage, that we can understand it rightly and apply it to our lives. God, I pray that we all realize that that none of us will leave here the same. We will either be warmed to you and your word, or we will become more and more cold um, in our unbelief. And so, stir us up. Help us see your word clearly. Um, give us the, the energy and the attention span to, to work hard and pay attention and, and to apply ourselves to this. And God, I pray that it can produce great fruit in our lives. And it can produce faith in us because um, your word produces faith in us. And so, God, we thank you for and ask for you to work powerfully in this room. In your name, Jesus. Amen. When was the last time you changed your mind? Uh, I, growing up, you know, high school, college, I, I've played a lot of, a lot of tennis. Not in college, let me be clear. I just played tennis for fun over here at Springbrook, okay? I'm not, I'm not very good, but I've always enjoyed tennis. And so this, this movement started coming the past couple of years, and I'm seeing all these different courts that look like tennis courts popping up, but they're not tennis courts. And you can hear it from about a mile away. Um, pickleball. I remember seeing these pickleball courts and seeing these people play, and I was just filled with judgment in my heart towards these people. This isn't a sport, it's a, it's a joke for people who can't play tennis, right? That's what pickleball was to me. Um, but then eventually somebody convinced me to play, and I absolutely loved it. I had a great time. My mind changed about pickleball. So changing your mind is possible. I just played yesterday and, and enjoyed it quite a bit. But when's the last time you changed your mind about a serious issue? It might be harder than you think to come up with an example. We, as human beings, 
aren't very quick to change our mind about things. We can be stubborn, we can be stuck in our ways. And in today's passage, we see the clearest example of that, how sinful humanity responds to Jesus Christ. We're going to ask three questions. What happened? Why did it happen? And so what? So what happened? We're going to walk through the text. Why did it happen? Look theologically at what happened there. And then, so what? Application at the end. Number one, what happened? Look at verse one. Last week, Jesus just responded in chapter 5, verses 21 through 43, to faith. Jesus responds to faith by miraculously healing two women. There was the woman with the, the, the issue of um, discharging blood, and there was the little girl who died. Um, two people had faith in Jesus. He responds by doing these miraculous things. So we, we're coming off a high in chapter 5, right? It was a beautiful uh, text last week. So now Jesus is going back to his hometown. Notice that he went away from there and came to his hometown. Where's that? Where's Jesus' hometown? Ch- uh, chapter 1, verse 9, it says that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. That's why Jesus is often referred to as Jesus of Nazareth. We see that in Mark one twenty four, where they say, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? What do we know about Nazareth? Nazareth was this small, obscure village in lower Galilee. Scholars seem to think that the population was about 500 people. Small, obscure, never mentioned in the Old Testament. And also it doesn't have a good reputation based on John 1.46. Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Okay, this is not a well-respected town. They had an accent. They weren't well-cultured. They didn't behave well. It reminds me of people from... Never mind, I shouldn't say. Uh, It reminds me of Alabama fans, right? I mean, just just kidding. If you're an Alabama fan, it's okay. Um, But just think. So small, 500 people, bad reputation. Just think. A humble unimportant, despised place like this. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And out of it comes Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most High God. The most important person in human history. You would expect him to be a loved local legend. Would you not? I mean, he's, he just raised a girl from the dead. You would think it would be similar to how people in our area feel about Peyton Manning or Dolly Parton. Just absolutely love. But how do they respond? Look at verses 2 and 3. He comes into the synagogue to preach. And as we've already seen in chapters 1 and 4, this would have been an amazing sermon they hear on this Sabbath day. It would have been full of gripping truth, stunning authority. And notice that they were, in verse 2, astonished. Which means that their, their minds were blown by this sermon, by Jesus' teaching. They're shocked by how good it is. See what they say in verse 2? Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? So this sounds pretty good, but we see in verse 2 here a hint of their wicked hearts where they say, where did this man get these things? This, This man literally, this fellow, which has the tone of, where does this dude think he came from? That's what they're saying there. 
And notice in verse 2, they do not deny that he's a great teacher. They don't deny that he has great wisdom. They don't deny that he has done mighty works. But the question is, where did this man get these things? There's not an intellectual disagreement with Jesus. There's an emotional response to Jesus. And they question the source of where Jesus got these things from. They can't deny the wisdom of Christ. They can't deny the works of Christ. But where did it come from? They ask. There's only two real options here. It either came from heaven or it came from hell. We've already seen an accusation that Jesus was demon-possessed. And since those are the only two real options, and they're not ready to accept that Jesus is from God, we see in verse 3 they go on to disparage Jesus Christ. How do they do it? First off, they say, Is not this the carpenter? Isn't that an interesting phrase where we learn something about Jesus? We see Jesus' earthly occupation before he began his ministry. We see it wasn't beneath the Son of God to work hard with his hands. This would be physical labor, working with wood, possibly stone. Now, being a carpenter itself wasn't an insult because Jews valued physical labor. However, this is, they would view this as like the average Joe job. Does that make sense? Just, just average you're a carpenter. This is not the guy who stands up on the Sabbath and blows your mind with unheard eternal wisdom. He makes chairs, right? Goes on, look what it says. Isn't not this the carpenter? Notice, is, it, is not this the son of Mary? This should stand out to you because typically a man would be designated by his father, not his mother. This could be a sign that Joseph had already died, but most likely this is supposed to be a jab. It's supposed to be an insult towards Jesus. They're saying, we know that Joseph isn't your real father. Hinting at him being born illegitimately. And so they take offense at him. That's Notice that at the very end of verse 3. And they took offense at him. Have you ever heard of the saying, familiarity breeds contempt? Proverbs 25, 17 says, Let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house lest he has his fill of you and hate you. So the principle of that proverb is the more you're known, the more you're around, the more you can bug people. Did you know that's true? I think about a new relationship where a girl might say something like, I just love his laugh. He just has the best laugh. And then ten years later, it's like nails on a chalkboard. Familiarity breeds contempt. So these people, what they're saying in verses 2 and 3 is these people knew Jesus when he was a kid. They knew his brothers and his sisters. You see them listed out in verse 3. They might have hired Jesus for some carpentry work. He was extremely familiar. So therefore, when they heard him teaching so profoundly, when they heard him teach with so much authority, they took offense at him. The word for offense is where we get the word scandalize. Literally, to cause to stumble. They tripped over Jesus. And they're offended because to accept Jesus' teaching would require them to let go of their pride and submit themselves to the average Joe Carpenter that they were so familiar with. That was a stumbling block to them. They just couldn't get over it. This is... Little Jesus, this is Carpenter Jesus, and now he's telling us all this stuff. 
So how does Jesus respond? Jesus responds with his own proverb in verse 4. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Everywhere Jesus went, we've seen this, have we not? He was being honored and celebrated. He was being esteemed, treated like a celebrity. There's a big grand crowd everywhere he goes. Last week we saw the crowd thronged about him as he's trying to go to Jairus' house. And ironically, the only place that he is not beloved is the place where he was known the best. In his own hometown, with his family, in his own home. Nazareth knew Jesus so well that they weren't impressed by Jesus. Let me say it more clearly. They thought they knew Jesus so well that they weren't impressed by Jesus. They were, as we'll see, blinded to the reality of who Jesus really was. And so in Mark 6 verse 5 it says, And he could do no mighty work there. Literally, not able to do miracles. Is that a little stunning to you to read that? I mean, last chapter, we just saw Jesus raise a little girl from the dead. So if you can raise a little girl from the dead, what can't you do? And so here we see Jesus in Nazareth not able to do a mighty work there. We need to be clear that this is not a power problem. Jesus isn't lacking power in this passage. No, this is a purpose problem. It's not a power problem, it's a purpose problem. Jesus does miracles, as we saw last week, in response to faith. He isn't going to respond to unbelief with mighty works. We see in Matthew 13, 58, same story. It states, and he did not do many works there because of their unbelief. So I don't want you to think about Jesus being limited. Oh, there's some things that Jesus can't do. But Jesus' purpose of miracles. One commentator argues, it's not Mark's intention to stress Jesus' inability. His purpose is rather to indicate that Jesus was not free to exercise his power in these circumstances. So what does this mean? Place your faith in Christ, he'll raise the dead. Be filled with unbelief toward Christ, he won't do a thing. That's what we see there. Now, it's a little ironic. Notice here it says in verse 6, I mean, verse 5, sorry. He could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Jesus' unsuccessful day would be the most successful day for anyone else in human history. You notice that? Oh, I just healed a couple people. This is like if, if Becky said, I had an easy day, I only ran 15 miles today. Okay, yeah, maybe that's easy for Becky, but for everybody else, 15 miles would be a pretty impressive day. Jesus here heals two people. And while this is funny, it's also sad because the unbelief of people in Nazareth led them to missing out on the power of God. Countless people in this city could have experienced freedom from their pain and their misery and their sin, but they didn't get the miracle because unbelief shuts you off from the power of Christ. That's what we see happen here. How does Jesus respond? Look at verse 6. He marveled because of their unbelief. To marvel means to be amazed. Just like the people of Nazareth were astonished at Jesus' teaching, as we saw in verse 2. Just like we saw last week. In verse uh, 42, 542, it says, Immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Imagine how you, were, you would feel as those parents, as you witness your daughter be raised from the dead right in front of you with your very own eyes, how you would marvel 
how you'd be surprised, how you'd wonder at it, how it'd be the most amazing thing you've ever seen. Now let's ask the question, what does Jesus marvel at? What is Jesus blown away by? As we see in verse 6, unbelief. This is one of only two times this word is used to describe Jesus in the Gospels. Unbelief shocks and surprises Jesus. He marvels at the lack of faith found in sinful man. And therefore, since Jesus is not wanted, he leaves. End of verse 6, he went out among the villages teaching. All throughout Scripture, through the Gospels, Jesus is never reported to go back to Nazareth. Unbelief forever shut them off from knowing Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's what happened. Let's ask, why did it happen? Why did this happen? I don't think it's enough to simply say familiarity breeds contempt. It does play a part, but something deeply theological is going on in this passage. For people to be repulsed by the most loving, most beautiful, most satisfying person in the universe is extraordinarily odd, is it not? Jesus himself marvels at this. And let me be clear, this is not just a problem in Nazareth, is it? Unbelief is the oldest sin, and it is the most abundant sin. Unbelief happened at Nazareth, here in Mark chapter 6, but unbelief also happens in Louisville, does it not? Unbelief happens in this room every Sunday. So what does the Bible say about unbelief? Jesus explains this perfectly. He explains what happens in Mark 6 and in our world in a passage we read earlier, John 3, verses 19 through 20. Where Jesus says, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. God's word teaches us that the people in Nazareth hated Christ because that's what sinners do. They are offended at God. The dark hates the light. Notice how Romans 1.21 perfectly describes the people of Nazareth and also all of sinful humanity, where it says, for although they knew God. You see that in Romans 1.21? Just like they knew Jesus. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's what's happening here. They know Jesus Christ, but they're not going to honor Him or give thanks to Him. And they became futile in their thinking, their foolish hearts were darkened, and they were shut off from the power of Christ. Same thing happens in 2023 in Blount County. So first of all, we see clearly in the Bible that sinful man rejects Christ due to their sinful nature. The darkness hates the light. But that's not all that's going on, okay? Sinners don't want Jesus, but there's also another factor going on here. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4 says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. This is not just a problem inside of our hearts, but it's outside of our hearts as well. 
We see in this verse, the God of this world, Satan himself, is actively blinding minds so that they won't see the glory of Christ. That's what the Bible says. So take your Bible and turn it to Ephesians chapter 2 with me. It'll be up on the screen, I believe, but if you have your Bible, I'd love for you to turn there. I want you to read verses 1 through 3, which sums this situation up perfectly. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What's our nature? children of wrath spiritually what are we like dead in sin so we hate christ the dark hates the light but who is influencing us you see in the text the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience who the the prince of the power of the air satan himself so why does nazareth reject jesus in mark chapter 6 why are people in blunt county today filled with unbelief Because sinful mankind is offended by Christ due to their sinful nature, their love for sin, and the work of Satan. This is simultaneously a dark doctrine and an illuminating doctrine, is it not? It's dark because it's sad, but it also helps us to understand the world. But where's the hope at this morning? You know, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. It's good news. If we keep reading in Ephesians chapter 4, we see those words, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. Here we see the beautiful doctrine of regeneration that while we were dead in our sins God is able to make us alive by his grace and that's our hope this morning in our sin and oppressed by Satan just like the people of Nazareth we are blind to the glory of Christ but through the grace of God we can be born again to see the beauty and truth of Jesus Christ That's why Jesus says in John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. What we see, why Mark 6, 1 through 6 happened, is because all mankind is born into sin, hating the light and offended by Christ. Therefore, we all must be born again by the grace of God found in our Lord Jesus Christ and faith in Him. And then with our new nature, we will treasure Christ instead of taking offense at Him. So what? Four applications this morning. Number one, familiarity breeds contempt. Very practically... I want this passage to be a warning to all of us today that the people of Nazareth that we see in Mark chapter 6 are not an example to follow. 
we can become so used to spiritual things that we stop seeing them for what they truly are. We can become so familiar with Jesus that we don't see Jesus for what he truly is. I think you can apply this to all spiritual things. You know, people of Nazareth, they couldn't see the tremendous blessing that Jesus was because they thought they had him figured out. Same thing can happen to us with the gospel, with the scriptures, with our daily Bible reading, with prayer, with sermons, with gathering together with the local church. Isn't that a temptation for us to get so used to this? To get so used to the sound of my voice? To get so used to hearing John 3.16? To get so used to hearing the gospel that you can kind of get tired of it? You start to feel a contempt. Brothers and sisters, this is not from a place of wisdom, but it's from a place of foolishness. Lord, Holy Spirit, will you give us eyes to see the beauty of the regular and consistent spiritual blessings in our lives? Don't miss them. Don't be like the people of Nazareth. Number two, reconsider unbelievers. I want this passage and this doctrine to, to paint unbelievers in your life in a new light. Number one, you should never be surprised at people rejecting the gospel. Or rejecting you because of the gospel. This is the most natural thing to happen in the world ever since Genesis 3, the fall of man. This is what happens. So you'll get persecuted. You'll get criticized. You'll get rejected. It's bound to happen. But I want to encourage you this morning that in this passage, in Mark 6, we see Jesus get persecuted, criticized, rejected. But did Jesus quit? Did Jesus stop ministry? No. He, they, they don't believe in him. They criticize him. They insult him. And then he went about among the villages teaching. So if you're in, in the midst of getting persecuted, criticized, rejected for your, your ministry, your gospel proclamation, keep, keep pressing forward. Keep going. Jesus didn't take criticism and say, you know what, maybe I should be done. Maybe I should quit. He said, you know what, I'm going to keep moving on goes to my second point here in this idea of reconsider unbelievers is to remain hopeful. This, this idea of, of being dead in sin but being able to be made alive in Christ should make us extremely hopeful in our ministry and our evangelism. Consider James. He's mentioned in this um, passage, Mark 6, verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James? James is there in Nazareth full of unbelief. In chapter 3, verse 32, we see James attempt to hinder the ministry of Jesus, stopping him. In John 7, verse 5, we see it says, For not even his brothers believed in him. So Jesus is even rejected, not by even his hometown, but as we see, also his family. But after the resurrection, James was born again. In James 2, 1, he refers to his own brother as the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So we go from actively hindering the work of ministry, hardened and blind to the reality of Jesus Christ to after the resurrection, being a leader in the church, referring to his own brother as Lord and the Lord of glory. And the only thing that could ever lead you to describing your own brother as the Lord of glory is the new birth. And if James can be born again, so hardened to the identity and person of Jesus Christ, so can the lost people in your life. So keep praying and keep sharing and put your hope in God. Don't give up. Number three, be thankful. For those in Christ, aren't you 
indescribably thankful for the grace of God. Apart from God's grace, you would have, like the people in Nazareth, remained in your unbelief. Cut off from Christ for all eternity. But as we saw in Ephesians 2, God showed up with His rich mercy and His great love. So that you can sing with all your heart, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Can you sing that song this morning? Knowing that you were blind to the glory of Christ, but now you can see it. And it's all due to the amazing grace of God found in Christ. We should be thankful. Finally, my last point, my last point of application. You must be born again. You must be born again. Nazareth wasn't the only time that Jesus would would be rejected. Did you know that? This is simply a foreshadowing of where he would ultimately be rejected by all of Israel. By being crucified on a cross like a criminal. But I'm here to tell you today that he wasn't crucified for his own crimes, but for yours. Even, even the cosmic crime of unbelief in Christ. So if you are here this morning knowing you are guilty of unbelief in Christ, I'm here to tell you today that Jesus Christ was crucified for sinners. He paid the penalty for sinners. He bore the wrath for sinners for the crimes that you committed. So currently, the Word of God says you are dead in your sins. It says you're following after Satan himself with no hope in this world or the world to come. But God's word is clear. You must be born again. So by the authority of God's word, I'm pleading you this morning to change your mind. Change your mind about something. To repent from go. You might have walked in here in unbelief in Christ and, and moved from unbelief to belief in Jesus Christ. Don't be like the people of Nazareth who saw the word of God so clearly in front of them and were offended by it and rejected it and were cut off from the power of Christ and the person of Christ. Don't be like them. No, believe in Jesus. Believe that he is the perfectly righteous son of God who died for your sins and was raised back to life. Forever surrender yourself in complete obedience to Jesus as the Lord of every single aspect of your life because that's what it means to be born again. And as Jesus said in John 3, 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus, we come before you, thanking you for the gospel. God, I pray for those who are currently offended by you, Jesus, currently walking in unbelief. Holy Spirit, I pray that you can reveal to them their sin, that you can open their eyes to the glory of Christ. And God, I pray that these people will put their faith in you today, that they'll believe in you. God, I pray that you just won't allow people to leave here until they, until they make things right. God, if there's anybody here who wants to slip out and talk to Pastor Chad in the back, I pray that they'll have the boldness to do that. God, as we come to your word as, as believers, God, we don't want to overlook spiritual blessings. We want to, to t- 
to receive them as gifts from you, or gifts of your grace. So God, as we, as we pray right now, God, thank you for prayer. God, thank you that we could be gathered together in your presence, God, speaking to you. God, we take that for granted, do we not? But God, we don't want to, we repent. God, we're about to sing you a song of praise. God, I pray that we can, we can do it intentionally, as, as, not as we're, as we're just going through the motions, but God, as we're, as, we're, as we're praising your name, we're praising your grace. God, I pray for the unbelievers in our lives that we know. Family members, co-workers, neighbors. God, I pray that you can use us to, to share the gospel. That you can use us to be bold. That you can use, and, and just give us hope, Lord. God, help us not be surprised, but help us be hopeful when it comes to our ministry and our, and our mission and, and our effort to, to spread your word. But God, I pray that we can just be Thankful for your grace. It's the only thing separating us from these people of Nazareth. God, thank you for thank you for loving us. Thank you for working in our hearts. God, I pray that we can just be filled with gratitude this morning for for what you've done for us. And I pray that we'll heed the example not to follow in Mark chapter six. In your name, Jesus. Amen.